Morning, everyone. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Donald Trump's team is trying not to be two for two in legal losses. A federal appeals court unanimously ruling he is not immune from prosecution prosecution for alleged crimes he committed during his presidency. And soon the Supreme Court will decide if states can remove Trump from their primary ballots. And stunning defeats for House and Senate Republicans. A House vote to impeach Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas has failed. And on the Senate side, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell admitting defeat on that bipartisan border deal. Also, breaking overnight, Hamas proposes a 135-day plan that includes an Israeli withdrawal from Gaza and the release of Israeli hostages. What's ahead in a crucial day of meetings as the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, meets with the Israeli Prime Minister? See you this morning starts right now. Before we begin, it has been a head spinning, fair word, sure. 24 sure. hours for Republicans in a hugely embarrassing defeat. The House GOP failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas after three Republicans broke ranks. Listen to the reaction on the House floor. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted. Meanwhile, over in the Senate, Republican infighting and intense pressure from Donald Trump has effectively killed the only bipartisan bill to address the unprecedented surge of migrants at the southern border. Now, back in the House, Republicans also failed to pass their own standalone aid package for Israel. On top of all of this dysfunction on Capitol Hill, we're now learning RNC Chairwoman Ron McDaniel is offering to step down as Trump pushes to install his own choice for party chair. And in Nevada, that GOP primary, Nikki Haley, lost by double digits, not to Trump, but to the well-known option of none of these candidates. Seriously. Let's bring in CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Lauren, uh, let's go back to this impeachment vote. We were talking yesterday, and I said, look, they're not going to put this on the floor if they don't have the votes. Uh, Apparently, they didn't have the votes. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, Phil, this moment yesterday. Look, if you're going to put something this monumental, this historic on the floor of the House of Representatives, you better know where your votes are and you better know what the attendance is on the other side. And that is the issue that Republicans ran into yesterday. They knew that they were likely going to have three no votes. That's certainly what happened on their side. Mike Gallagher had some specific concerns about setting a new precedent for impeachment. And he made that pretty clear in the Republican conference meeting hours before the vote. But what Republicans hadn't anticipated is that Al Green, a Democrat, would come from the hospital and actually vote on the floor. And what's really interesting, let me set the table for you, is there had been a vote right before this one in which Al Green didn't cast a vote. And that had sort of made Republicans think, okay, we know where the attendance is. Then this vote begins and At the end here, Al Green comes, he's wheeled into the House chamber. He votes, our reporting is he was voting without shoes on. uh, And that certainly set uh, the tone last night that Mayorkas' vote was not going to actually pass and he wouldn't be impeached. Now, the attendance in the House of Representatives is really fluid right now, which means that when Scalise returns uh, back to the House of Representatives after getting cancer treatment, this is going to pass. But it just shows you how tenuous this majority is right now. You have to know where every single vote is and you have to know where the other side stands, too. You know, Andy Biggs, who's a conservative, he told our colleague Annie Greer off the floor last night, you know, I like a good game. The Democrats played a good game. I just don't like we lost. 
The Senate will be taking a procedural vote on the immigration package today. Where do, what do you expect from that? We all know where Trump stands. Yeah, and we all now know where the Senate Republican Conference is headed, right? They are not going to be voting to advance this bill. I think one question mark I still have is James Langford and what he does. He's someone who created and authored this legislation. He told our colleague Dana Bash he was still looking at whether or not he was going to be voting to advance it, saying that if he felt like members just needed a little more time, perhaps he would be willing to vote against it to give them that time. But look, time is not going to make the situation any better. And you saw yesterday McConnell making clear that they are going to need to turn to a plan B. Democrats, meanwhile, very frustrated. Here's Chris Murphy. Do you want to fix the border or do you want to keep the border a mess in order to help Donald Trump? There are other parts of this supplemental that are extremely important as well. Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan. We still, in my view, ought to tackle the rest of it because it's important. Not that the border isn't important, but we can't get an outcome. And the border, of course, is attached to that $60 billion in Ukraine aid, that $14 billion in Israel aid. Those are still top priorities right now for Senate Republicans. So it looks like they're going back to the drawing board that existed for them four months ago, which is that perhaps Republicans would be willing in the Senate to just move forward with a supplemental package that doesn't include the border. All right, Laura Fox. And your job is fun. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's bring in senior political commentator Essie Cup, CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon. Look, this was clearly another day of a full-on pursuit of the Republican agenda of sequentially finding rakes, then stepping on them. Um, <laughs> I think what I'm trying to figure out longer term here is there are real-world consequences to what's happening right now with legislative inaction. And you look at the, the scale of the national security package generally, also what's going on on the border. Is there a near-term resolution for this? Oh, I mean, well, I don't have much optimism uh, on that. I mean, this, this Congress isn't, isn't solving most problems, and Republicans are playing politics with policy. They've decided that politics, i.e. trying to impeach Mayorkas, that's a political pro project, is more important than a policy win, which they asked for and got, and then are now refusing. So there, there, there's, there's now an effort on the left to say, okay, Maybe we had a hand in breaking this, but you're refusing to fix it, and so now you own it. We'll see if vote voters buy that, but it's a good messaging trick. John, you um, want to look big picture at sort of the big story here of House Speaker Mike Johnson mm -hmm. so far. <laughs> so much losing. House Republicans have shown themselves to be unwilling and unable to govern in the national interest. Uninterested in it. There, there you are. Yeah. I mean, th this, is, this is so many levels of failure. Yesterday in particular, right? Couldn't get a standalone Israel bill. Couldn't get the Mayorkas vote. Uh, have gutted provisions that were bipartisan that Republicans requested to strengthen the border. The Wall Street Journal and others saying this is the best border bill. You, Donald Trump couldn't get this. And, and now they're holding, what's really revealed is they're holding Ukraine hostage. That was always the objection. Because if you put Ukraine supplemental funding up for a vote, it would pass. It would pass. So they are playing politics with the border, and they are putting lives at risk in Ukraine. And, and in, in the fullness of history, this is gonna look like a Neville Chamberlain moment. Mm. I think that when I kind of look at the landscape and to your point on the bigger picture, what I'm trying to figure out is what is the pathway out? Not in the 
Uh, you're always very good at identifying with significant idealism that I respect and wish I could share. Um, <laughs> we call it Sorkinian, don't we? <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I it's take Sorkinian. that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it's one of those moments where you look around. Look, the Israel aid package was a messaging bill, right? The Biden administration has ar- had already offered to veto. They knew it had no pathway in the Democratic-led Senate. They were trying to foreclose pathways and jam people. The Mayorkas, as you th- noted, had, would do nothing for the border. It was yeah. purely political. They were trying to cool off the base so they could move other things. They can't do the stuff that's not supposed to do anything. How are they going to do the stuff that does something? That's but so you bad. make the mistake of assuming they want to do stuff. And the point for Republicans now is um, condensing the party, making it as pure as it possibly can be, and fomenting grievances. It has nothing to do with governing. It doesn't even have anything to do with winning, putting up like electoral wins or governing wins. I mean, the RNC has been gutted of most of its effectiveness and... and um, you know, problem solving. It's not interested as a party in doing any of those things. So no surprise, it's getting none of those things done. It doesn't care. That is such a dereliction of duty. Do your job. Being an incompetent cult is not a substitute for being a functioning political party where you actually solve problems, which is what the American people elect members of Congress to do. And pay them to do. Stay with us. We got a lot ahead, guys. And a highly unusual move, the National Republican Party chair offering to step down for former President Trump, even though he hasn't won the nomination yet. This is very rare. Ronna McDaniel was elected to her post with Trump's full support after serving as GOP chairwoman in Michigan. Recently, though, Trump's view of McDaniel has soured due to the RNC's poor finances, his feelings that the RNC could have supported him more in 2020. And now Trump says he'll make recommendations for her replacement after the South Carolina primary. CNN's Elena Treen joins us now. Not only is it striking because Trump's tune on her has changed so much. But she's held this position for so long, and it's rare to ever see something like this, is it not? Oh, it's very rare, and it was it's a stunning development. But look, I mean, Ronna McDaniel was facing pressures on a lot of fronts, and that's part of what led to this decision. But there's no doubt that Donald Trump was the driving force behind her offering to leave the RNC after South Carolina. And there's a couple reasons for that. I mean, Donald Trump and Ronna McDaniel, the relationship between the two has really deteriorated in recent uh, in recent years, and even more so over the past week. Um, as you mentioned, Poppy, Donald Trump still harbors a lot of resentment toward the RNC for what he believes is them not doing enough to challenge the 2020 election results. And that's something I hear time and time again in my conversations with Trump's advisors. They also grew increasingly frustrated with her um, and how the RNC handled the Republican primary debates. Obviously, Donald Trump did not participate in those. Uh, And Trump himself has privately uh, griped about why can't the RNC uh, not remain neutral? Why can't they come out and endorse me? That's something he had said um, in the past over the the past year now. Um, But look, this all really hit a tipping point last week, I'm told. And that's partly because the RNC reported just having $8 million in the bank last year. Uh, that's the lowest fundraising haul they've had about in a decade. And that's really when Donald Trump and his advisors started to make plans to send a clear message that something needed to change at the RNC. And that's why you're seeing Rana um, make this decision. And it all kind of culminated after a meeting on Monday where they met at Mar-a-Lago for more than two hours uh, with between her and Donald Trump. Elena, while we have you, there was a primary last night in the Republican Party. In case you missed it. And it's it's very confusing and convoluted, and Donald Trump's not on the ballot, and this was all kind of jerry-rigged to some degree uh, to to ease his pathway here. Uh, But Nikki Haley lost to the well-known candidate of none of these candidates, 
We've reached out to their campaign manager for comment. I, I guess the question is, they weren't playing here. They knew this was a done deal. They're focused on South Carolina. But how bad is that headline right now for the only Trump challenger left? It is bad. I mean, there's no doubt that this is embarrassing for her, especially because, look, Haley's trying to make the point that she's still a viable candidate uh, in this primary, especially as they head into South Carolina, where her chances there are not looking uh, that great, even though it's her home state. And even though this was a state where Haley really spent no time, she didn't spend a dime in Nevada, and that's partly because her campaign has argued that it's rigged for Donald Trump, it's still an embarrassing defeat. Now, I do want to just quickly read you a statement from her campaign. Uh, her campaign spokesman told CNN, quote, even Donald Trump knows that when you play plenty side, the House wins. We didn't bother to play a game rigged for Trump. We're full steam ahead in South Carolina and beyond. And again, even though there was no effort behind this, I mean, they chose to play in the primary, not the caucus, which is really, for all intents and purposes, far more important for the Republican candidates, because that's where the delegates are decided. It's still an embarrassing defeat, and it is not a good sign for her as, you know, she heads into South Carolina in a couple weeks. A couple weeks left. Right, Elaine Treen, thank you. I want to bring back uh, John Avalon, SC Cup. You mentioned the R uh, the R and C when we were talking a uh -huh. few moments ago. Uh -huh. What do you think about all this? Well, uh, we sort of got to this. It is remarkable, not only that there's this leadership change because she's been there for so long and her institutional knowledge is so great, and she's actually well liked inside the RNC. It is an election year, and they're making a leadership change in the middle of an election year. That's wild. But apparently, she was not compliant enough for Trump, right? Not refusing you know, refusing to um, cancel all the primary debates that really bothered him. This is a woman who dropped her maiden name, reportedly, for Donald Trump. Who was it again? At Romney. Yeah. And uh, that wasn't compliant enough. So I think we should not be surprised if Donald Trump names Donald Trump interim head yeah. of the RNC. I, I just want to <laughs> lean into that point. You can change your name to try to please Donald Trump, yeah. and that's not loyalty enough. If you have any question about not parroting his lies loudly and doing whatever he wants, and she did a lot for him, yeah. right? I mean, you know, the, the whole, the whole delegate- Paid his legal bills. Yeah, paid his legal <laughs> bills. The, the RNC is a shell of itself because they've been funding his, none of it's enough. They will, he, it, loyalty's a one-way street and he will still stick you with the ship. Mm -hmm. Let's end there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, I'm just trying to think if there's a counter to it and I'm having a difficult time finding one. All right, guys, stick around. We got a lot more. Hold, hold. This morning, also, Hamas has responded to this hostage deal. We're live in Tel Aviv with what the group is now saying. Also, landmark verdict for the first time, the parent of a school shooter is found criminally responsible. How much time she is facing in prison? We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. 
That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Well, breaking news this morning, we are getting new details about a counterproposal from Hamas for a potential hostage deal. Hamas is proposing a three-phase plan that would last several months. It pushes a full Israeli withdrawal from Gaza and the delivery of humanitarian aid in exchange for the release of hostages held in Gaza. But an Israeli official familiar with these negotiations tells CNN there is, quote, no way that Israel will agree to all of that. That proposal comes as happening right now. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other top officials behind closed doors. CNN's Jeremy Diamond joins us live from Tel Aviv. Jeremy, let's start with the proposal. What exactly are, uh, is Hamas proposing? Where do we think this is going to go? Well, the bottom line here is that Hamas is sticking to its demand that these negotiations, these releases of hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners, ultimately needs to end with a permanent ceasefire to this war, the withdrawal of all Israeli troops from the Gaza Strip. And that is obviously something that the Israeli prime minister himself has been repeatedly saying in recent days that he will not agree to. But if you dig into the details of this proposal, let's look at phase one, for example, here. You have the release, (coughs) excuse me, of women, children, the sick, the elderly in exchange for Palestinian prisoners, intensification of humanitarian aid, a temporary ceasefire, and the withdrawal of Israeli forces from population centers, and beginning to have talks about a complete ceasefire. Phase two would see the completion of those talks for a ceasefire, the release of all male hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners, and the withdrawal of Israeli forces from the Gaza Strip, whereas phase three would ultimately see the exchange of bodies and remains of the deceased, including those some 31 Israeli hostages who are believed to be dead inside of Gaza. But it's important to look at phase one, because if you look at phase one, it is not all that different from what Israel has agreed to as part of a broad framework proposal with Egypt, Qatar, and the United States. In terms of the types of hostages who would be released, the length of the pause, 45 days versus six weeks, about the same there. The real question is whether or not they can agree to something on phase one here and then move forward and continue negotiating over phases two and three, where clearly the major stumbling blocks will appear. Now, that's not to say that phase one here is identical to what was proposed in that broad framework. There are still some significant differences, including over the types of Palestinian prisoners who would be released here. But the bottom line is that they are not all that far apart as it relates to phase one. But will they need an agreement on all three phases before they start to move towards this? Or will they agree to some kind of uh, uh, phase one agreement and then continue negotiating as that phase one is implemented? President Biden, for his part, said yesterday that he found Hamas's proposal a little over the top. And Secretary of State Tony Blinken has made very clear that there is still more work to be done. He is doing that work as we speak, meeting with the Israeli prime minister and his team in in Tel Aviv today. Those negotiations will very much continue. Poppy, Phil. uh, Jeremy Diamond, a potentially really significant development. We'll see where it goes. Thanks very much. Also, in a historic decision... An appeals court here in the United States resoundingly, unanimously rejecting Donald Trump's immunity claim. We'll explain it all to you and the broader implications in Trump's next legal battles. Plus, a stunning new report finds that key bolts were missing on the Boeing 737 MAX 9 plane that lost a door plug mid-flight. What else investigators discovered? We'll have it for you next. The Supreme Court justices set to hear arguments today about whether former President Trump should be removed from the ballot in Colorado under the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists holding public office. 
Trump lawyers, will, Trump's lawyers will be there. But this time, Trump will not be. A source telling CNN that after treating court appearances like campaign stops up to now, Trump realized just how, quote, serious this case is. Meanwhile, Trump suffered a major blow on Tuesday after an appeals court ruled he does not have immunity in his federal election subversion case. Now, the court says former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches. We cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. CNN's Caitlin Polans joins us now. Just to clarify, the Supreme Court uh, arguments are tomorrow. Um, He's just very excited. I'm so for excited. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot too, of legal. Though. This is Caitlin. This is why I talk to you before I talk because you <laughs> kind of separate everything out for me in the calendar. Hey, can we talk about those arguments though? Do do we have any sense of what the Trump legal kind of strategy or plan is? Uh, at least as he waits for this 14th Amendment decision to come. Yeah, so everybody's put in their arguments already on whether Trump should be on the ballot. The Trump team says uh, the states shouldn't be able to make this decision. And the voters who are challenging him out of Colorado say the states can absolutely make this decision that he's ineligible. But our understanding through our source reporting over this past week is Trump is not going to be there for these oral arguments. He did attend a recent argument in another appeals case, not before the Supreme Court, in front of a court in D.C., but with this. This is a big case. He's been using these court hearings, proceedings in his various cases as campaign stops, but not tomorrow. That's because there's really no upside to this, one source told us. In this case related to the 14th Amendment, his team is going to be arguing something where they're winning in a lot of states. He's only off of the ballot or he's been told that he's ineligible to be on the ballot in only two states, Colorado and Maine. A ton of states have said, and they've looked at this issue, that they're not going to be removing him from primary ballots for the 2024 election. So they're winning in this. And Trump also has other things to do. He's going to the Nevada caucus on Thursday uh, for a party there. And so this is one of those situations where, you know, don't don't mess it up while you're ahead, especially in a place like the Supreme Court with so much decorum. A Super significant uh, appellate decision came out yesterday. Can you just explain to people how powerful it was? Not only that it was unanimous, but the, the way that this was written and the language that was used, what it says about this claim that a president should have absolute immunity in some circumstances. Right. So, Poppy and Phil, this is the case related to Donald Trump in federal court facing January 6, 2020 election charges. Uh, and the appeals court in D.C. made a decision that now is going to go to the, the Supreme Court. So we're talking about 14th Amendment, where his team is ahead. This is a case where Donald Trump has been losing. And this is the much bigger legal risk before him right now. What happened yesterday is three judges on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, a pretty powerful court, came together unanimously said that they agreed in an unsigned opinion that no president is above the law, that the specific accusations against Donald Trump related to the 2020 election appear to be able to stand. And the sort of thing that taking votes or taking the election out of the hands of the voters, that is certainly something that can be charged in court and that it is the responsibility of the court system to try a former president if he is accused of a crime. So a very thorough opinion, a unanimous opinion, and also the circuit court sent a very strong signal that they want this 
to move quickly, that if there is going to be a, tr a trial against Donald Trump, they need to resolve this issue quickly in the courts. And mm -hmm. they essentially set up a mechanism so that the appeals court in D.C. is very likely not going to be dealing with this anymore. And it's going to be the next stop is the Supreme Court. And Donald Trump has a deadline of Monday, super quick in the court world to go to the Supreme Court and ask for some relief. Very possible his trial is back on the calendar for this year. Okay. It's a huge development. Kevin Polans, thank you. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig joins us now. I see Cup and John Avalon are back. Um, I was with Poppy when this headline hit yesterday, and she ticked through like the four things that would tell her if this was a strong decision. Uh, <laughs> okay. Unanimity on yep. it, and then basically everything Caitlin just described. Yeah. So this was a very, uh, it wasn't just a decision. It made a statement yeah, to some degree. There's not even a silver lining in this decision. 57 pages for Donald Trump. I mean, usually when you get a complicated issue like this, the court will note a couple things that maybe are close calls or ambiguous, something you can cling to if you're the losing party. There's nothing of that effect <laughs> in this decision. There's not a positive word for Donald Trump in here. I mean, and the language, it's, it's very well written. It's very well laid out. I mean, the, the, at one point, the court says if Donald Trump got his way, it would collapse our system of checks and balances. I mean, Beautiful, powerful rhetoric. It's like Avalon wrote it almost. Um, <laughs> almost. Almost. But, but look, it sends a very clear message, I think, to the Supreme Court. And the result itself is not really a surprise. I think we all saw yeah. this coming. Uh, the big question, of course, is what happens now? Does the Supreme Court jump in? Yeah. But that, can we just tick in on that? Because yeah. another part of the language that was striking to me, quote, the justice is right. We cannot accept former President Trump's claim that a president has unbound authority yeah. to make crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power. Caitlin says, got to know by Monday, they've got to, you know, try to get some relief from the Supreme Court. Yeah. It's not a guarantee the Supreme Court will take this, mm -hmm. is it? Not at all. If you had asked me, and I think I'm sure you did on air a few months ago, I would have said, oh, the Supreme Court's definitely taking this. This is what the Supreme Court exists for. This is a constitutional issue. We don't know the answer. Major implications. That's why we have a Supreme Court. 90% chance they take it. I've changed my view. I think it's 50-50 now, as, as I will note for the record, does Joan Biskupic, so that's good enough for me. Um, <laughs> good company to be in. Yeah, exactly, because the Supreme Court also likes to stay out of messy problems if they can. There's been no dissent. This case was 3-0. They agreed with the trial judge, Judge Chutkin. And there hasn't been, in my view, and clearly in the judge's view, a powerful counter-argument. So it could be... We're not strong dissents. Right. It, there's no dissent. It yeah, could be exactly. that the Supreme Court just says, we'll pass. This stands as is. Would that be a problem? It would be stunning. It, I don't know that it'd be a problem, except for Donald Trump. for perception. Yeah, for, of the court. It's a good yeah. point. Uh, look, I, I, I think it's better for them to weigh in, but this decision was definitive. Right? The facts... And the principles are completely clear. One of the things in the decision I think was incredibly significant as we look towards to tomorrow's hearing, too, is it clearly states, this decision, that the president of the United States is an office under the United States, which is part of the language being used okay, in the Okay, can we Amendment. talk about why that... Do you find that interesting? I can wait to geek out can for a moment. Can we nerd out on that? <laughs> you, know, you geek out. Okay, so this, this decision at one point claims that the president is an officer. Um, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity? I don't know that word matters to this case. That word might matter a lot to the 14th Amendment case before the Supreme Court tomorrow. Tell people why. Yeah, so the Court of Appeals here is trying to put in a good word for tomorrow for the 14th Amendment argument because one of the arguments Donald Trump is making is the 14th Amendment does not apply to the president. The 14th Amendment actually does not say the president. It says senators, representatives, and electors. But it also says, or other officers, it doesn't say, or officers of the United States. And so there's a question of, is the president a quote-unquote officer, a common sense person would say, 
of course. Here, the Court of Appeals is saying, of yes, course. but this is going to, there's statutory linguistic construction either way on that. I mean, geeking out is great, and that's important. It's important. It's why you went to law school, and we count on your geeking out to really, really go deep. So, and I just in total However, partnership. Speaking as a fifth grader, would no. um, you know, a layperson, um, this actually wasn't as complicated as we might have thought it would have been, right? Not even complicated enough to go to the Supreme Court because it was such a resounding yeah. and decisive no, because I think if you were a fifth grader and someone asked you, should the president be the only person in the United States that gets to get away with criming because he's the president? <laughs> criming. That person criming. would say, probably not. Probably not. So it actually, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it was definitive and maybe the Supreme Court weighing in would be politically important, but it actually wasn't all that complicated. Well, of and, course and, and, the and, president should be liable for his crimes if he committed them. And, and, and turning over an election if you're the president of the United States is a fundamental threat to our democracy. Look, right. the other thing that just to keep in mind, because you know, th this conversation has been muddied beyond the, the substance of the facts. This, this decision was clarifying in a useful way. Um, as we skate towards tomorrow, again, looking at the, the history and the intent, um, this is a heavy decision. It should not be dismissed uh, out of hand. But the history around the ratification of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, makes it very clear that it was intended to be applied forward. It's about giving aid or comfort. And the president is an officer. Uh, and, and the debate in the Senate made that clear at the time. We just note that everyone's going to be able to listen to what happens tomorrow in court, right. uh, anywhere you want. Here, especially, you're going to be able to listen to the whole thing, which is super important. I know what you will be doing tomorrow. Yeah, I know. All I canceled the breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys, very much. We appreciate it. Well, the Michigan jury finds the mom of a convicted school shooter guilty. What this could mean for future cases, that's ahead. And real journalism is a crime in Vladimir Putin's Russia. Just ask Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. So Putin just decided to sit down with Tucker Carlson. Said. Regarding Hannah Hanna St. Juliana, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. It really was an unprecedented verdict. A jury convicted the mother of a school shooter on all four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Jennifer Crumbly's son, Ethan, is serving a life sentence for his deadly rampage at Oxford High School that killed four of his classmates in 2021. Now, prosecutors argued Jennifer was responsible for those deaths as well because she was grossly negligent in giving a gun to Ethan and failing to get him proper mental health treatment despite warning signs. This verdict could have major implications for future school shooting cases. Joining us now, CNN Legal Analyst and Criminal Defense Attorney Joey Jackson. Can I start with, given the precedent or lack thereof, I was very surprised to see this. Were you? I was. We're waking up today, Phil Poppy, to a different world in so many ways, right? Because we could talk about the specifics of this case, right, in terms of what happened. Uh, the jury concluding there was foreseeability, right? You give your son who has mental health challenges a weapon. Uh, that becomes a problem. That could lead to this. It's foreseeable. Are you on notice as a parent, right, if your child does have various mental health uh, maladies? And do you know about them or should you know about them? And then did you act reasonably? So there's the specifics of this case. But in terms of the generic implications, I uh -huh. think parents are going to be a lot more careful moving forward. And uh, I always questioned, you know what, will the jury really hold her accountable? That uh -huh. was really what I was looking to see. The answer was resoundingly yes. OK, I have two questions. On sure. This. The first one is what precedent does this set, right? Is it overarching? Is it across dates? 
And secondly, um, the word you just used, should, should a parent have known? Where's that bar there now for parents? So so let's start with, with the first one, right, in terms of what this means elsewhere. Not only in Michigan, right, in terms of where this was held, but I think across the country you're going to see prosecutors become creative. This prosecutor essentially saying, I'm mad as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore. And so to the extent that we already have a law on the books, it's called involuntary manslaughter. And if you're grossly negligent and you don't meet certain standards, hey, I'm going to try her. Right. The mother, Jennifer Crumbly, we know the father will be tried next month. I'm going to put all the evidence out there and that evidence will establish that you knew or let's get to the second part of your question, should have known. That's what negligence is all about. What was it? What would a reasonable person do? How would a reasonable person act? And would a reasonable person put a weapon in the hands of a 15 year old, go shooting with him, et cetera, when you have these mental health issues? And then the second portion of the question really too, Poppy, is it's not only do you know of your son's mental health challenges, should you have known? That's a big deal. That's and what the jury I find so interesting here about what it's going to mean for parents going forward. With the little time we have left, does this change everything like today? When you say we're waking up, lawyers yes. right now are looking, prosecutors are looking at this, parents should be aware of everything changes. So, Phil, I do believe that, right? Because one of the main reasons you're going to prosecute, you're going to send, obviously, because someone you think to be guilty. But the other thing is the deterrent value. And are people today thinking and parents thinking, I better be a whole lot careful. I better check on my kid. I have to be more diligent. I think that happens now. What happens to her husband? And can other prosecutors go back now and relitigate things and go after parents of other convicted school shooters? So what has happened has happened, and that's in the books, right? Double jeopardy. If people have been tried, the issue is that's done. Parents haven't been tried. Right. In terms of parents who have not been tried, you know what? I think prosecutors are going to say, hey, wait a minute, let's take a closer look. Very quickly, Poppy, in terms of the husband, I think that there's, he's very concerned, his attorneys are concerned. Why? Because remember, she blamed, she being Jennifer Crumbly, right, this on him. You were the one who secured the weapon. You were the one who purchased the weapon. You were the one responsible. He's going to have to live with that during his trial next month. Let's see if he can overcome it. He may not be able to. That's just a huge development. Joey Jackson, thank you very Always. much. Thank you. Well, this morning, there is a startling new finding in the investigation into why a chunk of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 plane blew out mid-flight. Next, the key pieces of the plane that were missing. Plus, support for Donald Trump runs deep in the Deep South. But what about a Nikki Haley's home state ahead? Our John King is all over the map and seeing what South Carolina voters think. A stunning revelation from the National Transportation Safety Board this morning. Federal investigators say evidence now shows four bolts that held the Boeing 737 MAX 9 door plug in place were missing at the time of last month's blowout midair on an Alaska Airlines flight. Boeing CEO acknowledged the company's responsibility in a statement saying, quote, an event like this must not happen on an airplane that leaves our factory. We simply must do better for our customers and their passengers. CNN's Pete Montine joins us now from Washington. Uh, Pete, the specifics here, lay them out for folks because they're very unsettling. This is a bombshell from the NTSB, Phil. The investigation of this incident has focused on the door plug bolts from the start. Four bolts like this one hold the door plug into the side of the 737 MAX 9. There are two at the top and two at the bottom. Both Alaska and United Airlines said they found planes in their fleet with loose bolts. But now the NTSB says Alaska Flight 1282 was missing all four 
bolts. How are they able to tell? Well, investigators recovered the door plug from the backyard in Portland. They brought it to their lab in D.C. for inspection. And the NTSB saw damage patterns that show the door plug moved up and out. Also, they noted a lack of damage around the bolt holes, meaning that the bolts were not there. Here is the smoking gun in the NTSB report. The four bolts that prevent upward movement of the door plug were missing before the door plug moved. There is one more amazing detail here. The NTSB suggests the plane flew for two months without the door plug bolts, meaning it was essentially a ticking time bomb. The fuse set last September at Boeing's Retton factory when the plane was still being built. Boeing removed the door plug to do repair work on some nearby rivets. This is the photo taken when the work was completed and the NTSB says the door was put back, but the bolts were not. This only pours gas on the FAA's audit of Boeing quality control. The head of the FAA told Congress yesterday it now has two dozen inspectors at the 737 factory. No finding of blame or probable cause yet. That will come out in about a year from now in the NTSB's final report. The CEO of Boeing says whatever the final report says, Boeing is accountable for what happened. Pete, thank you very much for the reporting from Washington. Next hour, we're going to be joined by the chair of the National Transportation safety board. They're the, one who, the ones who penned this report, and we'll get into all those big questions that Pete just raised. Well, the federal appeals court rejects Donald Trump's claim of absolute immunity. More on his next moves ahead. Plus, Taylor Swift kicks off her international leg of the Aras tour, and Japan is ready for it. We're live in Tokyo next. I'm very, very excited about this. Taylor Swift has released the track list. <laughs> for her new album. And some of the songs on the album are Florida, Guilty as Sin, and Fresh Out the Slammer. <laughs> or as one guy put it, wow, it's like she's speaking right to me. Well, on Sunday night, we could be saying that Mr. Irrelevant is now Mr. Super Bowl MVP. The person drafted last overall in the NFL draft. He's never done that before, but Brock Purdy is not really your normal Mr. Irrelevant. He's gone from being the very last pick in the 2022 draft to one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And Purdy, well, he's as humble as they come, and he appreciates the chance that he now has to try and lead the Niners to their first title since 1995. Here's what he told CNN. With every little moment in my life, every milestone that I've come across, um, just being grateful more than anything with the people in my life that have helped me get to where I'm at. I've had so much support in my life and it hasn't just been a one-man show. So um, I'm just very honored that, I mean, I'm, I, I get to play in the Super Bowl now and, and uh, live out, you know, like my dream as a kid. And um, so yeah, just more than anything, I have that grateful mindset. What a guy. I know you're a big fan. I'm a big fan, so I feel a little too biased to weigh in. But, but I love that he's awesome. a good, great guy, too, yeah. on his story. All right, it's Taylor Swift mania in Tokyo this morning as the pop superstar kicks off her first of four sold-out shows there this week after Swift's fourth show on Saturday. Fans are also excited for her to rush to Las Vegas to watch her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, play in the Super Bowl. CNN's Hanako Montgomery is live in Tokyo with more. I mean, the fact that the government of Japan put out a statement that don't worry, she's going to make it in time to the Super Bowl, I think says everything about the obsession over there. 
Yeah, Poppy, I mean, I wish you could be here with me right now because, yes, Japan is just as Taylor Swift obsessed as the United States. I'm standing in front of Tokyo Dome right now where Taylor Swift is literally having her concert right now. You can kind of hear her singing. I'm not going to sing along. I won't subject you to that. Uh, but you can also hear fans chanting. They are so excited that their favorite pop star is now in Japan. And, you know, event organizers tell us that all of her tickets to her concerts sold out within the first 30 minutes, which just goes to show how excited people are about Taylor Swift being here in Japan. And we have to remember that the last time Taylor Swift was in Tokyo to perform was back in 2018, nearly six years ago, for her Reputation tour. So fans are really Swift deprived. They want to see their favorite pop star up on that stage. But you know, it's not just about the fandom, it's also about the economic revenue. Experts tell us that Taylor Swift's four day concert will generate more than 230 million U.S. dollars for Japan, far more than the next biggest musical event in Japan, Fuji Rock, which generates about 134 million U.S. dollars for Japan annually. Now, the burning question that I'm sure is on both of your minds, also on my mind, will Taylor Swift make it back in time by Super Bowl Sunday to kiss her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey? Now, I'm no betting woman, but I'm going to say with quite a bit of confidence that she will make it back in time. It does not take time travel, just a private jet, which she does own. Uh, and, you know, she kind of has to make it back for that Super Bowl because why else would we watch it? Am I right? Well, Wait, just, you're definitely right that that <laughs> is the burning question Phil has been bothering me about since 3 o'clock this morning. Yep. Will Taylor Swift be able to kiss <laughs> Travis Kelsey? That's all I think about. All he thinks about. <laughs> and I go, thank you very much. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Good morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. I'm Phil Madden with Poppy Harlow in New York. Thank you for joining us. We have brand new details this morning about a counterproposal from Hamas for a potential hostage deal. The group has put forward a three-phase plan lasting several months, pushing for a full Israeli troop withdrawal from Gaza and the delivery of humanitarian aid in exchange for the release of hostages still being held captive. But an Israeli official familiar with the negotiations tells CNN that, quote, there is no way Tel Aviv will agree to that. Also this morning, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is holding critical meetings with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and key government officials there behind closed doors in Tel Aviv. Blinken had earlier called the Hamas response, quote, positive. So we'll see where this goes. And President Biden took a slightly different take, calling this proposal, quote, a bit over the top. Our Jeremy Diamond starts our coverage this hour live from Tel Aviv. I mean, the, the momentum is there. You've got a proposal on the table. You've got Blinken and having all these key meetings. But the ask, according to this reporting, may be too big for Tel Aviv to agree to. Yeah, Poppy, it's still it's clear that there are still major differences between where Israel is and where Hamas is over a potential ceasefire over these uh, over the release of hostages. And that's mainly because Israel uh, is still rejecting this notion of a permanent ceasefire, whereas Hamas is very much looking for an end to this war altogether as part of these hostage negotiations. But if you dive into the details of these proposals, and particularly when you look at phase one that Hamas is proposing, uh, there are a lot of similarities between what their counterproposal is and where Israel has been over the last week and a half. Uh, and that's because each phase here would last 45 days. In this first phase, you would see the release of women, children, the sick, the elderly in exchange for Palestinian prisoners, an intensification of humanitarian aid and a temporary ceasefire with Israeli forces withdrawing from key population centers. 
That is very similar to what uh, Israel had agreed to as part of this broad framework. But when you dive into phases two and three, this is where the problems start to show up. And that's because Hamas wants to negotiate over a permanent ceasefire. They want uh, the completion of those talks in phase two, the release of male hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. And critically, in phase two, they also want to see the withdrawal of all Israeli forces from the Gaza Strip. And that is where an Israeli official today is drawing the line, saying that there is no way that Israel will agree to a ceasefire and the withdrawal of all forces as part of these hostage negotiations. Now, the major question is whether or not these two sides can agree to a phase one deal here and then continue talking, continue negotiating as we start to see a pause in the fighting, the release of hostages uh, out, as outlined in that first phase of the agreement. There's no question that the ball is now very much in Israel's court as well as in the United States court. And that's where we find Secretary of State Tony Blinken in Tel Aviv today meeting with top Israeli officials. He met earlier today with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. As we speak, he's meeting with the chief of staff of the Israeli military, and he'll be meeting with the Israeli president and other officials later in the day. But the ball is in Israel's court. The question is how they will now respond to this latest counterproposal from Hamas. And keep us posted through the day as we learn more. Jeremy, thanks very much for the reporting from Tel Aviv. Also this morning, in a major blow to former President Trump, an appeals court ruling unanimously said he does not have immunity from the federal charges against him, alleging he plotted to overturn the 2020 election. Now, Trump has long claimed he cannot be prosecuted for acts he says fell within his duties as president. But in a strongly, very strongly worded uh, opinion, the three-person panel says, quote, Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches. Now, Trump has until Monday to file an appeal. Let's turn now to CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Um, Ellie, I think let's just start by walking through it because it was such a, uh, the scale of what was put into the, the actual opinion itself underscores just how strong it is. It's really remarkable. This is why we go to law school, by the way. This stuff is so interesting. I didn't and go to law school. Some of us, Poppy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because this is about how our government functions. So just to orient people, this is Jack Smith's federal election interference case based in Washington, D.C. against Donald Trump relating to the 2020 election. So let's look at the three main pillars of the argument and the decision that we saw yesterday. First of all, Donald Trump argued that he has blanket immunity, that as president, Nothing he did can be charged criminally. And the court, we just saw this quote, rejected that very clearly. They said former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers, collapse the system. That's a very dramatic refutation of that defense. The second argument that Donald Trump made is that, well, okay, if I don't have blanket immunity, I at least have immunity for things that I did within the scope of my job as president. Donald Trump, of course, was president. He said what I was doing when I was calling other state officials, when I was calling members of Congress, I was acting within my official job as the president. And the court firmly rejected that. They said, no, you weren't. In fact, what they, they said that what you were doing was not only outside the scope, but probably criminal. And then the third argument that Donald Trump made that the court rejected was this sort of unusual creative argument that Donald Trump's team came up with, that the only way a president or former president can ever be indicted is if he is first impeached in the House of Representatives, then convicted in the U.S. Senate, and only then can the president be prosecuted. And the Court of Appeals said, no way, that's apples and oranges. They have nothing to do with one another. So a very firm rejection of all of Donald Trump's arguments. Literally all of them. Yeah. What, talk about what happens next. Yeah, so really important. We are here. This decision came out of the Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit. The district court, the trial court, they have been 
what we call stayed, meaning on pause since this appeal started back in December. Now, the key date to keep in mind is this coming Monday, February 12th. <clears throat> if nothing happens, then the, the case goes back to the trial court and they can get back on the game. However, what Donald Trump is likely to do is go up to the US, U.S. Supreme Court, say, we want you to take the case. We want you to keep everything else paused. So we're going to hear whether the U.S. Supreme Court is willing to stop this very quickly. If they are willing to stop this and take the case, that's going to push this trial date way back. But if they say we're not taking the case, it'll be back in the district court. And we very likely will then see a trial at some point before the 2024 Do you election. dream about that? Uh, uh, I, I don't know if it's nightmares. Yeah, I dream. I dream about all of this. Yeah, yes. it's that in the calendar. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Appreciate guys. it. Uh, this morning, Republicans are reeling after a day of dysfunction and defeat on Capitol Hill in a stunning and embarrassing loss. The House Republicans failed to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, after three Republicans broke rank. Listen to the reaction when this happened on the floor of the House. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted. Meanwhile, over in the Senate, Republican infighting and pressure from Donald Trump has effectively killed the most significant bipartisan border security bill in decades. Mitch McConnell now admitting it doesn't stand a chance as the Senate prepares to vote just a couple hours from now. But wait, there's more. Back in the House, Republicans then failed to pass their own standalone aid package for Israel. Also, we've learned RNC Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel is now offering to step down in the middle of a presidential election year as Trump pushes to replace her. And Nevada's GOP primary, which happened last night, Nikki Haley lost by more than 30 points. Not to Donald Trump or anyone else, but to the option of none of these candidates. Seriously. Let's bring in CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Lauren, I'm just trying to get a sense of... What Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, never thought he had an easy path to begin with, but where does he go here? How did this happen, particularly on Mayorkas? Yeah, I think the Mayorkas vote is really worth paying attention to, in part because this was such a historic moment for the House Republican Conference. This was a moment that they had been marching toward for several months. And despite the fact that the votes were always going to be really close, you don't take a gamble on something so significant as impeaching a cabinet secretary. This was going to be a moment where Republicans could talk about the border. This was going to be a moment where they were going to be able to have some contrast with the Biden administration and provide that contrast for their members on the campaign trail. But there was a simple math problem. Basically, they thought one Democrat was absent. Turned out that Democrat showed up just in time for this vote on impeachment in the House of Representatives. Al Green wheeled into the chamber. According to our colleagues who were witnessing this, had no shoes on for this vote. And certainly that caught Republicans by surprise. They knew that they had three no votes. And that is obviously something that they just didn't have any more room for air. But again, you got to count the votes. You got to know who's present. And that includes the folks on the other side of the aisle. Now, Republicans are saying that they are going to bring this back up when their numbers, uh, you know, come back. Basically, they're waiting for Steve Scalise, the majority leader, to return to the Capitol. He's receiving cancer treatments and has been away. Once that happens, they are adamant that this is going to pass. But it's an embarrassing moment. And it's a moment that could have been avoided. And of course, it comes paired 
forward with the fact that they were not able to pass that Israel aid bill. They tried to pass it under suspension of the rules, which basically means you need a large number of Democratic votes. Earlier in the day, Democratic leadership made clear they were urging their members to vote against it, not because they're against the aid in principle, but because they say that this needs to be part of a larger package related to Ukraine as well. So obviously a lot of moving pieces here, but I think what it says is that Mike Johnson is still really new at this. Yeah. Now, as John Avalon was pointing out, a lot of failures in a condensed amount of time. What about on the Senate side? So they're going to take up this immigration bill that Mitch McConnell, you know, who supported it, says it's dead. What happens now? Yeah, so they're going to have this procedural vote that includes the border security provision. That is going to fail. And then we have new reporting that Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, will then move to try and advance a bill that just includes the security supplemental piece. So that means aid for Ukraine, aid for Israel, aid for the Indo-Pacific. And that is expected to have a pathway forward because Republicans, despite the fact many of them wanted to see more border security, they still acknowledge that this Ukraine aid is so essential. Now, even if this can get through the United States Senate, it's just important to keep in mind, where is it going in the House of Representatives? Mike Johnson, again, has another huge question to deal with. Lauren Fox, thank you for all the reporting. Also, this a stunning new report finds that key bolts were missing on the Boeing 737 MAX 9 plane that lost a door in the middle of the flight. What else investigators discovered? And an historic ruling against the mother of the Michigan school shooter. Jennifer Crumley found guilty of manslaughter. The details of that verdict next. Well, in a landmark verdict, a jury convicted the mother of a school shooter on all four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Michigan jury has unanimously convicted Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of Ethan Crumbly, who killed four of his classmates in 2021. This is so significant because this is the first time that the parent of a school shooter has been held responsible for their child's actions. Ethan's father, James, is facing the same charge. His trial begins in March, and our Jean Casares has been following this from the beginning. She joins us live from Pontiac, Michigan. It is a verdict that not only is significant there, but really for the entire country, right? Absolutely. You know, Poppy, this community has been through so much. They have experienced a mass shooting and all of the emotions that go through that. This jury is from this community and they spoke loud and clear. A historic verdict. We find the defendant guilty. In the manslaughter trial of Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of a teen who killed four students at a Michigan high school in 2021. The jury unanimous in their verdict after more than 10 hours of deliberation. Jury seat number 12, was that and is that your verdict? Yes. Jennifer Crumbly had pleaded not guilty to four counts of involuntary manslaughter. One count for each student her son murdered. She faces a maximum punishment of up to 15 years in prison for each count, which would run concurrently and will be sentenced in April. On November 30th, 2021, Ethan Crumbly killed Madison Baldwin, Tate Meir, Justin Schilling, and Hannah St. Juliana at Oxford High School using a gun his parents gave him. The case is a novel one and unprecedented in testing the limits of whether a parent of a mass shooter can be held accountable for the attack. This case is a very dangerous one 
for parents out there. It just is. And it is one of the first of its kind. The jury forewoman said one detail stood out in deliberations. The thing that really hammered at home is that she was the last adult with the gun. The family of one of the victims reacting to the verdict just outside of the courtroom today. It was a, a long time coming, but it's definitely a, a step toward the accountability. It's not really about winning or losing. You know, it's about um, you know making it apparent that you know this has to stop in society. During the trial, prosecutors painted Jennifer Crumbly as grossly negligent, giving her son a gun and failing to get him the proper mental health treatment despite warning signs. The question about why Jennifer Crumbly didn't take one of these small, small actions, secure the gun, find out where the gun is. It looms large in this courtroom. There is no one it looms larger for than the victims and the family members of those kids who were killed on that day. But the 45-year-old's lawyer argued her son's actions could not have been predicted. Can every parent really be responsible for everything their children do? Especially when it's not foreseeable. And this clearly was not foreseeable to Mrs. Crumbly. Because there's no one in the world, including Mrs. Crumbly, who would have let a school shooting happen. Scenes from the day of the shooting were shown in court while the jury heard from those who survived it. I had texted my husband, I love you, active shooter. Um, and then I started feeling blood dripping down my arm. Jennifer Crumbly took the stand earlier in the trial during the defense of the case and appeared to shift some blame onto her husband. Who is responsible for storing the gun? My husband is. Jennifer's husband, James Crumbly, is scheduled to go to trial on the same charges in early March. He too has pleaded not guilty. And Jennifer Crumbly will be sentenced on April 9th in this courthouse right behind me. Under Michigan law, it is not only allowed, but it is encouraged to have victim impact statements. It will be an emotional day because the victims in this particular case, once again, those four students, the families that were gunned down by Ethan Crumbly in November of 2021. As far as James' trial, it is set on course at this moment for March 5th. We'll see, though, how that develops. We just showed all four of those victims. It is so important that people listen to what their families say in those victim impact statements. Gene, thank you very much. To politics, Nikki Haley losing in the Nevada primary, even though she was the only major candidate on the ballot. Not great. Also, the man, the myth, the legend of the map, John King, he's going to go to Haley's home state of South Carolina. Take the pulse of the voters on that GOP primary. That's next. She's not running against Donald Trump. And, you know, I think that the people who support me in this enterprise expect that if I'm going to support someone, they are going to be as aggressive and as honest and direct about Donald Trump being unfit for the presidency. So that is former presidential candidate Chris Christie explaining why he has not endorsed Nikki Haley. Christie told CNN it doesn't look good for Haley in her home state of South Carolina ahead of the primary there a little bit later this month. Well, good for us. CNN's John King recently traveled to the state to see how the actual voters are viewing the race. And John King is with us right now. So tell, tell us, this is the big question right. hanging over the Republican Party now. Is there a real pathway for Nikki Haley?
Uh, it's almost mission impossible when you visit the state. You realize just how complete the Trump makeover of the Republican Party is, even in her home state. When I started doing this, Ronald Reagan was president. The keys to success in South Carolina, lower taxes, less government, strong military. Lower taxes, less government, strong military. Uh, Nikki Haley's running in a state now where, yes, she was elected twice as governor, where the main question Republicans ask is, you know, where are you on Trump? Uh, it's not about ideology anymore. It's all about Trump. So can she do it? She has to convince a whole lot of people who are now voting for Trump to change their minds. That's hard. She has to convince a whole lot of Democrats, independents and moderate Republicans who normally don't show up for Republican primaries to come out and vote because any registered voter can vote in the primary as long as you didn't already vote in the Democratic primary. Uh, she really needs a time machine. She needs to go back to a party that I don't think exists anymore. Mm. Let's talk about what you heard when you were on the ground there from voters. Uh, what you hear is uh, Nikki Haley was a good governor. Uh, but and there are some people who some people, even people who voted for Trump in the past, who say, I'm done with this. But the main takeaway was uh, we like her, but we love him. The South Carolina shoreline is spectacular. Island Treats ice cream shop, a popular stop in Polly's Island. Just one scoop of moose tracks. That's okay. good. Joy Rendulic cashed in her 401k eight years ago to buy the place, leaving Pennsylvania behind. God brought me here. I tell everybody, he brought me here. Rendulic served her first scoop back in 2016. Nikki Haley was governor then, and Rendulic was impressed. Yes, she was a very good governor. But then and now, Donald Trump is her vote for president. I totally believe that God has assigned him to this position. That is my true belief. Signed him to be the president of the United States? Yes. And uh, he'll be president again. So I've been what, saying what, that for a long time. <laughs> what happened in 2020 then? Uh, that was a mess. That was um, some illegal, some improper cheating uh, happening. No judge in any state so or many, federal judge found any evidence. And I think so many people hate Trump that... And that Even judges it, appointed by Trump? Even Trump's Supreme Court? that rejected them in the end, three, three of his justices there. No, I just know that there was a whole lot of cheating. If it was God's plan for Trump to be president, why would God let that happen? Because right now the, the time happened, okay, what happened is what happened, but in, and, and I believe Trump's coming again. Such Trump is best no matter what sentiment, is easy to find in South Carolina, a big reason the former president is heavily favored in Haley's home state. He's even more ready now. Mark Sanford is out of politics because he has a very different take on Trump. Sanford was the Republican governor here before Haley. Then he won his old House seat back in 2013. But Sanford lost a Republican primary in 2018 because he criticized Trump's spending and sometimes his tone. I would say, well, I'm for Trump in this area, but I'm against in these different areas. But people didn't want nuance. They want, are you for or against him? Sanford nods in agreement when Haley criticizes Trump for all the chaos and all the deficit spending. Yet he expects a big Trump win here. That which has traditionally worked in GOP politics isn't so much working these days. I've seen this erosion, you have too. You go from Tea Party, sort of pro-movement, to Tea Party, to Trump. It's metastasized in ever-aggressive forms. And what started out is a lot of well-meaning Americans saying, look, we got to do something about politicians doing what they said they were going to do into something much more strident is their religion. I mean, I, I, I don't know how else to explain it. 
Hartsville is two hours inland from the coast. Billy Pierce, here for 70 years except for a stint in the Navy, is another piece of the Trump comeback puzzle. The four years he was president, how was your life? Better. Definitely better. We didn't have the high inflation. We didn't have the high interest rates. Not an election denier. Not a fan of the toxic tone. He had just shut up and, you know, got off of Twitter and that kind of stuff. He'd have made a great president. His 2016 and 2020 votes for Trump track his 1992 vote for Ross Perot. I wanted a non-career politician in there that would do, would run it like a company, run this place like a company, like a CEO. Pierce calls himself likely Trump in the primary. The border is his top issue. Shut it down. And on that, he trusts Trump more than Haley. He's going in to fix the things I need him to fix. I have no problem, be honest with you, I have no problem with putting up two rows and mining the other. So if they come in, you tell them it's mine, you put signs out there say it's mine. Like many voters drawn to Trump back in 2016, Craig Thomas wanted to send Washington a message. It was like, all right, like, this is good. Let's blow some things up. Now he's voting for Haley to send his children a message. I don't think there's any sort of crazy you know, conspiracy between the NFL and Taylor Swift and everything else just showing up for a Biden coronation. To end, Thomas hopes awkward conversations after his teenage daughter gets home from the stables. How do I look at my daughter, who is a huge Taylor Swift fan, and this guy's just attacking Taylor Swift for just because she's going to support another candidate, right? Um, and other things like that. And so having those conversations you know, with them, it, it, it does matter, and it does you know, matter with who you support. Charleston is rich with revolutionary and Civil War history. It is more affluent, more educated, less Trumpy than most of the state. But there is quite a bit of talk about Trump, um, even here. That's a bad sign, Thomas says, for those like him who want South Carolina to somehow give Haley a win and give the Republican race a new beginning. So you asked at the start, is there any math for Haley? Yes, it's nothing is ever impossible. She has a little more than two weeks to pull this off. But remember, she last ran 10 years ago. It's been a decade since she was on the ballot. Since then, Donald Trump won the 2016 primary, won the 2016 general election there, won the 2020 election there. So he's won three times in South Carolina. So it's as much his state now as it is hers. Can we talk about Nevada? Sure. And what happened there last night? Uh, so the Haley campaign is trying to say nothing happened because they weren't playing because all the delegates are actually awarded Thursday night in the caucuses. And Trump has that pretty well wired. But it was a chance for her to get this symbolic. See, there are voters who want me. Yeah. And she lost uh, to none of these candidates. Uh, that tells you, again, it's the same point um, that the party is this is Trump's party now. Uh, and it, this, even though we're eight years into this, it hasn't sunk into some people. They're like, oh, something's going to happen that's going to somehow, all these voters are going to say, never mind, we don't want Donald Trump. That's proof right there, even though that's not for delegates. Not a lot of people voted, but enough people went out to say, no, we're not even going to give her a symbolic victory so she can say, look, there are people who want me. Literally none of the above. The, the Perot to Tea Party to Trump through line. I hadn't actually thought through that. Before. Is that like a common? It's a, I think I think a former Governor Sanford makes a very important. Point. No, I think it's super smart. I As someone who lived through too. this, it, yeah. this is this is about globalization. This is about where's the North Star? What do I tell my kids to study yeah. in school? Where's my job going? What happened to my town? You know, there used to be a factory here. My grandfather worked there. Then my father worked there, and I thought I was going to work there. It's, this started in the mid '90s, and because the traditional politicians have not helped people through it, and now you have AI, and then you have the COVID pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, and everything else, they're, they're not getting a north star from the traditional politicians. So people are going outside their boxes. So for anyone who thinks how they get so far outside the box, they get to Trump. Yeah. I would say to the traditional politicians, look in the mirror, come up with a better way to talk to blue collar Americans who don't make as much money as you do, who don't go to the fancy schools you went to, right. who want some help.
Yeah. That's fast. I always thought of the yeah. like Newt being the genesis, that yeah. era of Republican. No, it, it, I, think, yeah, I think he's right. You can it's, trace it. It makes back. a lot of sense. Yeah. John King, we love having yeah. you on, man. Thank you. Thank you. Also, this news this morning, a brutal attack on a Palestinian-American man has America's largest Muslim civil rights group calling for hate crime charges. We'll tell you what happened next. And an appeals court resoundingly rejecting Donald Trump's immunity claim. We're going to break down the wide-ranging implications. Stay with us. Welcome back. This morning, the nation's largest Muslim civil rights group wants prosecutors to bring hate crime charges in the attack a Palestinian-American man that happened over the weekend. 23-year-old Zachary Dorr is recovering from surgery after being stabbed following a pro-Palestinian protest in Austin, Texas on Sunday. The Council on American-Islamic Relations is calling for hate crimes charges to be brought against Bert James Baker. He's been arrested in charge with second-degree aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. CNN correspondent Diane Gallagher joins us now with more of the details. And <clears throat> Diane, what happens next? And, and what's the family saying here? Yeah, so, Phil, what happens next is it's under investigation. Austin police are calling it a bias-motivated incident that will go to their hate crimes review committee. Now, only the Travis County District Attorney can actually bring hate crime charges if they determine they are warranted. That office told CNN yesterday that it awaits receiving the investigation. Now, 36-year-old Burt James Baker was arrested on Sunday and charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon in the stabbing of 23-year-old Zachariah Do. Now, according to the Council on American-Islamic Relations, on Sunday, Dora and three other Muslim-American friends were leaving that ceasefire rally in Austin when a man on a bicycle ripped a flag bearing the Palestinian kufaya and Free Palestine on it off of their car. That is when Kerr says that the man came around, began shouting the N-word, and pulled one of the men in the vehicle out. The other three got out, tried fighting him off, and that, they say, is when Dora was stabbed. Dora's father spoke yesterday, saying he was devastated when he got the Call. He had been at the rally with his son and blames the governor, the city council, and President Biden. He said, Mr. President, Mr. Joe Biden, I blame you. I blame you for what happened to me. If you were called for a ceasefire three months ago, this will have never happen. The first thing that came to my mind is I'm going to lose my son. I was thinking how I'm going to tell them that I failed to protect my son. Now, Zachariah Dor has a five-month-old son at home himself, uh, Phil Poppy. His father says that he had surgery, that he was in agony after that stabbing. Care tells me that he had a broken rib. He was stabbed in the side and is recovering and, again, wants to see uh, charges and hate crime charges against this suspect, they say. All right, please keep us posted. Diane Gallagher, thank you. Well, startling new finding in the investigation into why a chunk of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 plane blew out mid-flight. NTSB Chair Jennifer Hamadi joins us to discuss the key pieces of the plane that were missing. Next. Welcome back. A startling finding from federal investigators a month after this terrifying moment that the door plug of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 just blew out mid-air during an Alaska Airlines flight. Yesterday, the National Transportation Safety Board released its preliminary report saying evidence indicates the four bolts meant to hold the door plug in place didn't malfunction. They were actually missing altogether at the time of the blowout. The report included this photo. Take a look. It was taken in September. That is more than a month before the plane was even delivered to Alaska Airlines. And it shows where the hardware was missing while the plane was being worked on. 
It means that this aircraft flew for about two months with the bolts missing before the January 5th blowout. The report did not assess cause or lay blame. Those details will come in the full report at a later date. So let's talk about all of this with the chair of the NTSB, Jennifer Homendy, for her first interview since this report was released. Good morning. I'm so glad you're with us. If, Good morning. If we don't know uh, why they were missing and this plane was flying for about two months without them, is it possible something like this could happen again? Of course, that's always possible, but that is, this is the reason the NTSB exists, to ensure this never happens again. I do have confidence that these planes have been fully inspected by the FAA mm -hmm. and that they've been assured of safety. But of course, something like this can happen again, which is why we are now digging in yeah. to Boeing's quality assurance quality management, and safety culture to make sure this doesn't happen again. A couple of things you just said there. When you say basically the FAA um, has assurance, right, that this won't happen again, this gets to the issue of how this happens, that companies self-report a lot of this stuff. I just want everyone to listen to this exchange. This is the FAA administrator, Matt Whitaker, with lawmakers yesterday, asked about, you know, who oversees the safety of these planes altogether. Here's that exchange. It seems to me that we can't rely on uh, our, the manufacturers them, themselves to be their own um, watchdogs. Is that something you would agree with? I, I certainly agree that, that what's the, the current system is not working because it's not delivering safe aircraft. So we have to make some changes to that. Do you agree there need to be changes? Does the system need to change? I absolutely agree that uh, it needs to change. There is no way that this plane should have been delivered with four safety critical bolts missing. There's a problem in the process. We are digging in. We're not just digging into what's going on at Boeing, mm -hmm. but we're also digging into FAA's oversight of Boeing as well. But I'm very encouraged by the administrator's comments. I okay. think he's made uh, some great choices, and we'll see how this uh, plays out going forward in our in our investigation. Is it clear to you uh, and the agency who was supposed to put the bolts in or when it didn't happen? Yeah, uh, so at this point in the process, some work was being done. Uh, one, once Boeing received the fuselage, they noticed that uh, some rivets in the frame uh, forward of the left door plug needed to be repaired. They called Spirit in. In order to do those repairs, they had to remove the door plug. And in order to remove the door plug, they had to remove the bolts and they weren't put back in. Now, we are, have requested documentation on how this happened and uh, in what stage of this process this occurred uh, so we can figure out yeah. Uh, what changes need to be made, but we're still waiting on that documentation, if it exists. Yeah, well, you, yeah, if it exists, you need it to be able to get these answers. Um, on that point of waiting for some of those answers and documents, the um, contractor for the fuselage, Spirit Aerosystems, not to be confused with Spirit Airlines and Boeing, both came out with these statements yesterday saying we're being transparent, essentially, and we're cooperating with the investigation. Do you share that assessment? Yes, they are being uh, very cooperative in the investigation, providing us information that we need. We certainly hope that continues. They've, this is not a new process for them as the NTSB conducts investigations. And, you know, we work together 
to find safety issues that can change in the future. But right now we're working together and uh, hope that we can that continues going forward. Jennifer, something else happened this week. Just on Monday, Boeing sent this letter to staff that they found misdrilled holes in the fuselages of about 50 undelivered 737 planes. Not something that poses an imminent safety risk. That's what Boeing says. But that compounded with this with the previous MAX crashes, is there a quality control problem at Boeing? I think there is a quality assurance problem, a quality control problem. Uh, And that's exactly what we're digging in on right now. We want to understand their quality management systems, their safety culture, their safety management systems throughout the company uh, to see where there are deficiencies uh, to make sure this doesn't reoccur. Uh, If you have... Uh, situations or deficiencies in manufacturing and production, that needs to be taken seriously and corrected. Prior to this report, Jennifer, you uh, told CNN you would have, quote, no problem flying on a MAX 9, quote, tomorrow. Now that the report is out, knowing what you know, would you still fly on a MAX 9 tomorrow? Absolutely. They have been inspected uh, thoroughly, I believe, by FAA, along with United and Alaska, I will say working with Alaska uh, on this investigation has been uh, very cooperative. They have taken this very seriously, had serious safety concerns. So I I would have no problem uh, tomorrow uh, taking a flight on a MAX 9. This has been immensely helpful um, to hear from you. Please come back when the full report is ready. Jennifer Hamdi, thank you. Thank you. Well, new details this morning. Hamas has just responded to the latest hostage deal, the latest on what that group is now proposing. And a major change in the world of streaming, a huge deal between three media giants impacting the way you watch sports. The latest on that deal next. This morning, there are seismic changes underway in the world of sports media. Three of the biggest companies in sports broadcasting, ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery, the parent company of CNN, they are partnering up to create a giant sports streaming platform. Yeah, this is going to offer consumers access to a big range of sporting events, including from the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, the NHL. This will officially launch in the fall. Let's bring in our senior media analyst, Sarah Fisher. I saw this headline and I was like, this is this is great in terms of fighting sort of what streaming has done to cable television by collaborating together. What is the upside here for the companies, but also for consumers? Yeah, well, for the companies, Poppy, there's very little risk. They're going to get the same dollars that they're going to get from distributors on cable for this venture. So going into it, it's likely going to be pretty profitable. The downside, though, is the pricing. So for something like this, you're probably going to have to charge around $45 or $50. And people are already paying around $70 if you get something like YouTube TV, maybe $70 or $80 if you're getting cable. So it's not that much cheaper. I think that it's you're going to be able to pull people necessarily out of the cable bundle. What these executives at these companies companies are hoping is that they're going to capture more dollars from people who aren't paying for cable. Now, the downside for the consumer, of course, is that we're missing two major sports players. CBS is not involved. You know, CBS is airing the Super Bowl. They have a lot of major rights. And then, of course, Comcast NBC is not involved. And so you're going to get a huge sampling of sports, but you're going to be missing some. And so you're going to have to make the decision about whether or not it's worth paying for this thing standalone if you still pay for cable, because with cable, you're getting everything. So the two things that came to mind for me were, oh, wow, they're creating cable. 
And the second thing was that these uh, like leagues and teams, they all have individual contracts, contracts with cable entities. How does that work? Do they all kind of shift those over into this new conglomerate? How does that happen? So if you're a league, you're still going to have the same rights and partnerships with the network. So that doesn't change, although they're going to have to have some of these conversations with the leagues to make sure that they're OK with this. Same thing for the distributors. You know, we get our cable packages through companies like Comcast or Verizon. The networks, the ESPNs and the TNTs of the world, they're going to have to have those conversations with the distributors. Right. Now, they're hoping that they can get this all settled by the end of the year. I will be curious to see if they can get this through. But right now, the companies are betting that they're going to be able to get the same money for from everybody, from uh -huh. the distributors, the leagues, and that this will be profitable pretty soon. Uh, any, any reporting on why CBS and NBC didn't join and if they were approached? I mean, it's a very good question. I'm sure there were, you know, conversations about whether or not they're brought in. These companies are all trying to figure out, Poppy, whether or not they merge with each other. Yeah. And so right now there's a lot of bigger questions outside of just sports that could be tainting whether or not they join this particular venture. You know, another big thing to consider is that whether or not some of these companies can merge is going to be dependent on regulatory approval uh, from a bigger macro perspective. They don't see regulators getting involved in this sports thing. But I think that the macro conversations might be impacting these smaller conversations around this streaming service. Sarah, since we have you, can I ask you about, there was a ton of attention yesterday. Tucker Carlson is in Moscow, sat for an interview with Vladimir Putin. I'm all for people interviewing Vladimir Putin. Uh, there are real questions given Tucker Carlson's proclivities uh, related towards authoritarians over the course of the last several years. What, what is the deal with this? I mean, this is what his playbook is. Ever since he left Fox, he's been interviewing autocrats. You know, he went to Hungary and he interviewed Viktor Orban, the uh, prime minister there. Obviously, he's done sit downs uh, with former President Trump, who, you know, I wouldn't say is necessarily an autocrat, but is somebody who's very populist. He likes to give these types of people a platform because it's not something he could necessarily do when he was in the cable world. Now that he's struck out on his own and he's in digital doing his videos on X, formerly Twitter, he has the latitude to interview whoever he wants and he will do it. It's, it'll be interesting to watch. I would just note that in his kind of preview tease video, the idea that Western journalists are not asking for or wanting a sit down, including our own, with Vladimir Putin is the most well, absurd thing. While Western journalists are imprisoned right. in Russia for doing their job of journalism. That's actually a great point. Evan I do hope he asks about Evan Gershkovich. Gershkovich, yes, at, the, at this moment. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah. Sarah Fisher, we always appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. House calendar number 60, House Resolution 863. Resolution impeaching Alejandro Nicholas Mayorkas, Secretary of Homeland Security for High Crimes and Misdemeanors. The yeas are 214 and the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted. This should be a layup impeachment vote. Do you want to fix the border or do you want to keep the border a mess in order to help Donald Trump? Well, this is where we are. Good morning, everyone. So glad you're joining us. A day of dysfunction for Republicans. They failed to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, appear to kill the border deal they negotiated, and the party leader might resign this morning. What is next on Capitol Hill filled with chaos? Responding to the proposal for a ceasefire in Gaza, what it wants in exchange for releasing the hostages, and why Israel is already rejecting it, at least on its face. Yeah, and Donald Trump faces a second historic case hours after an appeals court uh, unanimously rejects his claim of absolute immunity. His new legal strategy as the Supreme Court prepares to take up the ballot battle tomorrow. This hour of CNN This Morning is now.
Well, this morning, Republicans are reeling after a day of embarrassing defeats and dysfunction on Capitol Hill and a stunning loss. The House GOP failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas after three Republicans broke ranks and voted with Democrats. Watch. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted. And just hours from now, the Senate is set to vote on a major bipartisan border security deal with elements Republicans demanded. Mitch McConnell already admitting defeat after intense Republican infighting and pressure from Donald Trump. On top of all of that, House Republicans also yesterday failed to pass their own standalone aid package for Israel. And also, the RNC, we learn party chairwoman Ronna McDaniel, is now offering to step down in the middle of a presidential election year as Donald Trump seeks to replace her. There's more, though, and in Nevada... GOP primary. It happened last night. Nikki Haley lost by more than 30 points. The winner by an overwhelming margin was none of these candidates. Notably, Trump's name was not on the ballot. Let's start off with CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Lauren, look, this impeachment vote, it's an embarrassment. Uh, It's stunning on a whip count level. It's stunning on a how do you not move this messaging thing forward? How did it happen? Yeah, Phil, I think that that is the question that Republicans are asking themselves this morning. This was really sort of a last minute moment where Democrats had a one up on Republicans, essentially Republicans had had a vote right before this Mayorkas impeachment vote to sort of check where the numbers were, double check where the numbers were, and they believe there was one Democratic absence. Then the Mayorkas impeachment vote begins, and toward the end, you have Al Green, a Democrat who is wheeled into the House chamber to vote. This person did not vote in the previous vote series, and then all of a sudden appears. That set off a problem for Republicans because they already had three of their members voting against these articles of impeachment against Mayorkas. So it was in part an opportunity for Democrats to embarrass Republicans, but in part it was a problem where they just didn't have their numbers right. And, you know, this is such a historic moment that to go into a vote with margins this tight and to not have everything locked down is obviously an embarrassment. Now, Republicans are saying that once Steve Scalise, the majority leader, is back in Washington, they will hold this vote again and it will pass. And that is certainly going to be the case. But the reality is it's still an embarrassment in this current situation. And it's an embarrassment because you had so many Republicans who had been working toward this for so long. I mean, it's not ideal to have three of members of your own party voting against it in the first place, then to not get it across the finish line. Well, that's another problem entirely. Yeah, it's a remarkable ability to fail at things that aren't going to go anywhere anyway. Like they're doing them purely for messaging and no, they can't pass. And they're still not being able to pull off. I do want to ask you, look, I don't actually care about the whip count on the immigration package in the Senate. It's a procedural vote. You and I love that stuff. Normal people don't. What I care about is what happens next. There is still $60 billion for Ukraine aid that's outstanding. There's still $14 billion for Israel aid. There's a no Pacific aid. There's still the border. Is there a plan B here? Yeah, there is a plan B, and you're going to start to see it today, Phil. So they'll hold this procedural vote on the border supplemental package. It will fail because Republicans are not going to be backing it, despite the fact that they were the ones who originally pushed for the border package. Then there will be another procedural vote on just that aid for Ukraine, Israel, and the Indo-Pacific. That bill we do expect could advance because you had McConnell yesterday signaling that despite the fact that the border deal was falling apart, he still wanted to see, and a lot of Republicans, 
Republicans wanted to see that critical aid for Ukraine and Israel move forward. I think the next question, though, is where does this go in the House? Even if the Senate gets it out of their chamber, you then have yet another question for Speaker Mike Johnson. Is he going to put a standalone aid bill on the floor of his chamber, knowing that there are a number of conservative members who, in his conference, are not voting for this and might threaten his job over putting it on the floor. Phil, Poppy. Thank you, Lauren, very much. We'll get back to you soon. Joining us now, Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida. We really appreciate you being here. Let's start with just you were there being in the room yesterday for all of this. What was it like? And Republicans say they're going to bring this vote again. Do you think this just ends up with what they wanted, which is the impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary? Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. No, look, this continues the chaos of the 118th Congress, which so far for its historical purposes has expelled the member and removed the Speaker of the House, which hadn't been tried in over 100 years and actually had never been accomplished. In this vote, they're trying to remove a cabinet secretary, which hasn't happened in 150 years and, and, and in fact failed. I mean, look, they should always believe that Democrats are going to have all of their members. Mm -hmm. This idea that, oh, they thought we were down one so they could get it passed. That's amateur hour. OK, they should always believe that every Democrat is going to be in the room uh, and they should make plan for those contingencies. But they didn't. Uh, and so now uh, it's an embarrassment. Look, there were a couple of Republicans there that still believe in the Constitution and the fact that you have to have a high crime and misdemeanor. They may not like uh, Secretary Mayorkas, they even think uh, he might have been doing a bad job. But that is not a rationale for impeachment. We might recall, by the way, former President Trump hated like half of his cabinet secretaries. Rex Tillerson was dumb as rocks. He, you know, his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, he hated. Um, you know, no one was talking about impeaching them because the president didn't like them or Congress didn't like them and the American people didn't like them. So, you know, this unfortunately just continues the chaos of the 118th Congress. You know, though, some of those Republicans you're talking about are folks like Mike Gallagher, right, who, who wrote um, about why he voted against this impeachment in The Wall Street Journal this morning. He writes, impeachment not only would fail to resolve Mr. Biden's border crisis, but would also set a dangerous precedent that would be used against future Republican administrations. I wonder what you thought when you read that and when you listened and saw his vote yesterday. No, that's exactly right. We are continuing to break the place. I mean, it just devolves every single solitary day, a new norm falls. And then yes, it's gonna be repeated, right? We, we see this in Washington, right? Democrats got rid of the filibuster on federal judges. Republicans got rid of the filibuster on Supreme Court judges. You know, Democrats censure a member, Republicans censure three members. You know, they're gonna go and impeach Mayorkas. You can guarantee that there'll be two or three cabinet secretaries impeached next time. And no one is gonna want to be a cabinet secretary if this idea is you can be impeached because the opposite party doesn't like you or mm -hmm. think you're doing a bad job. That does not rise to the level of impeachment that is enumerated specifically in the Constitution. Let, let me, uh, and so, no, I think those three Republicans act, got it right. Let me ask you more broadly about the border crisis, because you told Jake Tapper last week that Republicans, quote, have been highlighting the border for a long time. And you went on to say, and we Democrats were late. You are one of 14 Democrats who voted for a Republican resolution that denounced Biden's, quote, open door policies. How much blame do you think Democrats right now deserve for this crisis? Well, look, that resolution, you know, doesn't mean anything. I was voting for it because I was trying to show my colleagues across the aisle that I'm serious about trying to secure the border. Well, what do you I mean? I think it, the American well, on, people should be told the truth. 
just this is the resolution denouncing the Biden administration's open border policies, condemning national security and public safety crisis along the southwest border and urging President Biden to end his administration's open border policies. You're saying it doesn't mean anything. But did you did you agree with that? No, but what I'm saying is it's not a bill. It's not yes. like it becomes a law. It's a it's a resolution. It's a resolution. It's a messaging tool. And so that Republicans were using it as a messaging tool, which is really what all they've done this 118th Congress. And so what I wanted to say is, listen, you know, I agree that we need to secure our border. There are mm -hmm. Democrats that agree that we should secure our border. And there are Democrats who think that that there is a crisis at the border. Uh, and so at the end of the day, what I was saying uh, to Jake Tapper is both things are true here mm -hmm. and the American people understand this and know this, which is, look, Republicans have been yelling at the, about the border, okay, and Democrats were slow to respond. But now that we're at the table and the most conservative border bill comes forward out of the Senate. In fact, Senate the Republicans said, we're not going to do Ukraine or Israel if we don't secure our borders. So we said, okay, put it all together. This is what they wanted. This is their border bill. The most conservative border bill yeah. comes forward in a generation and all of a sudden they're like, oh, my God, yeah. well, we, we can't actually fix, fix the situation because Donald Trump needs a crisis at the border for his campaign. And so that is also true now that they're walking away from fixing the border, that they gin this up. And now they're showing the American people that they're not serious about fixing it. They want the crisis to continue uh, so that they could use it in the next election. Congressman, just before we move on, just two, two points of fact. I hear you. Just want, there are a number of Republican senators who, who were for for this, um, but also the fact that it is President Biden who put forth combining them in his in his supplemental. Let me talk about the standalone Israel aid package that that the House has put forth. President Biden said he would veto it. And the way the White House explains that is basically saying, look, we put something forward. We bipartisan negotiated. We want it tied together. And then the White House says this bill is another cynical political maneuver. But you voted for it. So I wonder what you make of the president's veto threat. Well, look, you know, the president has to do what he feel is right. Uh, I serve in the House. I have to do what I feel is right. Mm -hmm. And based on the fact that this is the least productive Congress in yeah. 30 years, the most chaotic Congress in 30 years, I can't plan for this beautiful bill that might come to the House. I have to vote on what's in front of me. And so what's in front of me is an Israel aid package. Now I support Ukraine and I support securing our border and I support during doing humanitarian aid for the Palestinians in Gaza. So I support the big bill that the president is pushing. And I hope we eventually get there. But with everything dying, uh, and right now my colleagues across the aisle showing the world that they don't want to stand with Ukraine and giving Putin a win by struggling to pass this Ukraine aid, I don't want to send a message to the other part of the world in the Middle East that we're walking away from Israel while the United States right now is fighting Iranian proxies in the region because they're killing American citizens. And so, you know, that's why I supported uh, the bill for Israel. Israel right now is in the middle of negotiating getting 100 plus hostages back in exchange for a prolonged ceasefire. You know, we need to stand by our number one ally uh, in the Middle East, and that's why I voted for it. And if they bring okay. it back under rules, this was under suspension, as you know, if they bring it back under rules, it would have passed the, uh, the House because it wouldn't have needed two thirds. OK, Congressman Jared Moskowitz, thank you. And we're going to get right to that breaking news that you're referencing there. Appreciate your time thank this you. morning.
It is the breaking details on the Israel-Hamas war as Secretary of State Andy Blinken meets with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. What's in the Hamas ceasefire proposal and why Israel is already saying no? Our chief international anchor, Christiana Mumford, joins us to talk about all of it next. Well, new this morning, a counterproposal from Hamas about a potential hostage deal. The group is proposing a three-phase plan lasting several months. It includes a full Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, a massive humanitarian effort, and freedom of movement throughout Israel in exchange for the release of hostages held in Gaza. Now, an Israeli official familiar with the negotiations tells CNN that, quote, there is no way Tel Aviv will agree to that. And the news broke just as Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The prime minister's office described it as long and in-depth. With us now to discuss all of this and a lot more, our chief international anchor, Christiane Amanpour. So glad you're with us. Even if the deal as a whole is rejected, is there a chance parts of it live, Christiane? Well, look, it's hard to tell. I mean, the, 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 the news was, you know, breaking for us, but obviously the parties have had these proposals and papers for at least 24 hours. Um, it seems in, in, you know, sort of, if you talk about big picture, what Hamas's counter-proposal suggests an end to the war. What Israel's proposal suggested was a temporary pause to get hostages back, obviously with the release of Palestinian prisoners, and to allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza. So it looks right now as if these two you know, places are quite far apart. And as you said, uh, an Israeli official told CNN that this will not fly. But uh, remember, of course, that the coalition of Benjamin Netanyahu uh, that he depends on for staying in office does not want an end to this war before the maximalist goals are achieved, if they can ever be achieved. And those are, as articulated by Netanyahu, the complete defeat of Hamas and the removal of Hamas from Gaza, and also the, the, the total you know, release and, and rescue of all the hostages. Now, most people do not believe that those two goals can happen at the same time, that they are in uh, actual opposition to each other. You cannot get the hostages back uh, by force. That It hasn't happened yet. Uh, the only time the last hostages were released was during a negotiated truce and a pause and that's when they got hostages back and they swapped with Palestinian prisoners. So, so these are the outstanding issues. Now maybe, maybe some of the uh, proposals might happen uh, if anybody is prepared to allow parts of any kind of negotiation to succeed instead of the broad picture. Um, clearly, uh, clearly Gaza needs a huge amount of, uh, of human humanitarian aid. And uh, clearly, the Israeli people put re releasing their hostages uh, and their family members front and center of what is going on. They want that to happen. And they want it, it appears, from public support inside Israel, they want that before an end to the war. In other words, they want that as their top priority. Christian, that's my biggest question is, are we at a tipping point where the political considerations, the coalition considerations that the prime minister uh, has had to take into account. It's just the reality, if he wants to stay in power, uh, will start to give way to the international pressure, the internal domestic pressure, the pressure from one of the few key central allies they have left behind the scenes in the U.S. Is that, the, is that what will trigger this? Is that the only thing that will open the door to a new deal? 
It's really interesting because what we're hearing from reporting inside Israel, uh, whether it's from Western organizations or, or Israeli organizations, is that there may be a tipping point in uh, Netanyahu's grip on the coalition. As you've seen over the last several weeks, there's been open, um, open fragmentation, open dissent from within the war cabinet, the so-called uh, unity or emergency cabinet, uh, with Gaddy Eisenkart, a former you know, military chief, uh, saying elections need to happen now and Netanyahu needs to tell the people the truth. And he basically meant that the truth is you can't get the hostages out if you're also you know, carrying out this massive counteroffensive. The two will not happen uh, simultaneously. The idea, uh, as we are told by Israeli officials, that only maximum pressure on Hamas will get the hostage release has not been born true. That hasn't actually happened. It's only negotiations that, that have uh, released at least, uh, you know, 100 or more back at the end of November. So uh, if there is an election, which clearly Netanyahu is resisting, uh, then he is likely to lose, according to internal reports, because of the you know, rock-bottom ratings that he has. And he doesn't want that to happen. He wants to stay in power. Uh, you've had increasingly um, very prominent Israeli writers and journalists saying that Netanyahu's lifelong political aim of not having a Palestinian state uh, is something that the, the Israeli people are going to have to understand will not bring them peace, that there needs to be a negotiated solution that gives rights to the Palestinians, security and rights to the Israelis, and once and for all ends this. Because increasingly, and Alouf Ben, who is a major Israeli writer, his latest article is that uh, that's the only way to end this cycle of violence. Christian. Uh, moving to Russia and Vladimir Putin. Tucker Carlson has now interviewed Vladimir Putin. Uh, he made an, uh, an inaccurate claim that no other Western journalist has bothered to try to interview Vladimir Putin. What do people need to know ahead of this interview being released? Well, you know, of course, that is so ridiculous that even uh, Vladimir Putin's press spokesman, right. Dmitry Peskov, very powerful man in the Kremlin, close associate of Putin, said that that wasn't true because he knows that all of us have been, you know, knocking down his door to try to get such an interview. Uh, but he said, well, maybe, uh, maybe Carlson didn't know that. You know, th th that, that's, you know, that's the sort of nonsense that Carlson is trying to justify this interview. But let me just read for you what some, uh, you know, what some uh, Russian uh, Russian journalists have said, if I can find that, in fact, I will look for it. Uh, basically, somebody like Evgenia Albats, who's a prominent journalist, has been very angry at this notion that only Carlson can interview Putin. She said, unbelievable. I'm like hundreds of Russian journalists who've had to go into exile to keep reporting about the Kremlin's war against Ukraine. The alternative was go to go to jail. And then she adds a little bit of an expletive against Tucker's uh, position there. But I think what's really important to know is Tucker Carlson suggests that the American people, the rest of the West, don't understand Putin, don't understand the Russian military action, the war, the invasion. Well, again, that's clear clearly untrue, because if you saw polls in the United States and around the world, uh, even at the UN, everybody understood that this was an illegal invasion of a democratic and sovereign state. And the polls were very, very much, uh, and these are people, not journalists, for the defense of Ukraine.
in and the values it is upholding for all of us. And that is a fact. Now, obviously, the longer it goes, the more difficult it is to keep up that support, particularly as you've just been reporting the uh, unbelievable shenanigans that are going on in the U.S. Congress that simply will not send support to a country that is trying to fight not just for its values, but for all of our uh, security. Um, so I think that Tucker Carlson, as you know, has uh, said over the years many, many things that are very supportive of uh, Vladimir Putin, even after the annexation of Crimea, uh, suggested that Putin was never a threat to the United States or to U.S. interests, uh, has called Zelensky, you know, an authoritarian and a dictator, uh, worse than, you know, is, is as bad as Lenin, etc. So, you know, this stuff just doesn't hold up. Why he's doing this interview now, obviously for the Kremlin, it makes sense if they want to talk. It's a friendly, it's a friendly voice, but we will keep trying our best to actually commit journalism. Yeah. You'll never stop trying, Christian. Thank you for all that this morning. A historic verdict in the trial of the mother of a school shooter. The jury convicts Jennifer Crumley for her role in the mass murder committed by her son. How this ruling could influence other mass shooting cases ahead. Regarding Hannah Hanna St. Juliana, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. It was a historic first inside a Michigan courtroom that could have legal ramifications across the country. A jury convicting Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of school shooter Ethan Crumbly, on four counts of involuntary manslaughter, concluding she is responsible for the deaths of four students murdered by her son. Her son Ethan is serving life in prison without parole for the shooting at Oxford High School in November of 2021. They killed Madison Baldwin, Justin Schilling, Tate Meyer, and Hannah St. Juliana. Prosecutors argued Jennifer was, quote, grossly negligent in giving a gun to Ethan and failing to get him proper mental health treatment despite warning signs. Joining us now to talk about this, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, we appreciate your time this morning. When you heard the verdict, when you saw how this was ended up playing out, were you surprised? No, uh, I wasn't at all. And in fact, I think the jury got it right. What do you think this means? The reason I ask that, and you know this quite well, there isn't precedent for this. This is a, a kind of a landmark case in terms of what it means going forward. What is your read of what it means going forward? How do you view what this has changed in the law? Well, first of all, I, I don't know that it's changed anything significantly. In Michigan, uh, on February 13th, due to a change in the legislature and perhaps in response to this um, horrific set of circumstances, uh, we now are going to have a, a law that mandates that parents and guardians have to safely secure and store firearms. And it you know happens to be the exact same penalty as this involuntary manslaughter. But in this case, you have to remember, there's a very extreme set of circumstances here. You know, here the parents, uh, it was proven during the course of, of this case, or at least I'll, I'll, I'll limit this to Jennifer Crumbly, since her husband hasn't yet gone to trial. But, right. you know, uh, she knew that her that her son, you know, had mental health problems. She purchased her and her husband purchased her son, a, a, you know, their 15 year old son, a deadly weapon. Uh, they failed to, to store it and to keep it safe and secure. They knew the day of the shooting that, you know, at school he had been called into uh, the, the principal's office for having drawn these very grotesque uh, and concerning and disturbing pictures of, uh, of a gun being fired, blood everywhere, the thoughts won't stop, showing, you know, murdered corpses. 
they they didn't take even the you know most ordinary simplest measures to ensure that he didn't have a gun on him at that time. They didn't take him home from school. They didn't try to get him uh, mental health uh, treatment at that point. Um, and then after the shooting, they fled the area and they went into hiding. Right. I mean, that's an incredibly extreme set of circumstances that frankly we're unlikely to see again. Um, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't really extrapolate extrapolate anything from this case to other cases because of that very unusual fact pattern. Well, it's, it's interesting to say that because I've been trying to think through, you know, if you're a prosecutor around the country, are you looking backwards? Are you looking retroactively at cases now and, and seeing if there are any analogs, seeing if there are possibilities here? Uh, you think that they shouldn't do that? I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. I, I'm just saying that I think you're you're unlikely to find a fact pattern that's extreme as this. But I think, again, you know, talking about what we should be doing, I'm so glad that in Michigan we're going to have new laws that hopefully, you know, there'd be strict liability here because the parents simply failed to secure this weapon from their minor son. And I think if if the lesson we learn is that all parents should be doing that, um, we won't find ourselves in this situation again. I do want to ask you about the New Hampshire robocalls. Uh, you have worked on these issues. This is a robocall that sounded like Joe Biden that was very clearly trying to suppress voting uh, ahead of that primary. How big is this threat over the course of the next 10 months? I think it's extraordinary. It's immeasurable. Um, I think we have to crack down on these types of illegal robocalls as quickly as possible. I actually prosecuted from the 2020 election uh, a case of illegal robocalls that were meant to deter voters. That case is actually on appeal and is ongoing, but it was right. successful in many other cases where the same call occurred. This is even more dangerous, though, because, of course, it purports to come from the candidate himself. Right. Uh, and, you know, we have to do everything we can to ensure that there are significant penalties for anyone who uses technology to try to deter people from voting this way. Yeah, it's certainly a... Um something everybody has to be keeping an eye on. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Well, tomorrow, Donald Trump's lawyers go before the Supreme Court to keep him on the ballot after losing his presidential immunity claim. We've got new reporting on Trump's legal strategy before the historic hearing. And right now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with Israel's President Isaac Herzog as negotiations continue for a possible ceasefire. We'll continue monitoring these talks all day. You have to leave immunity with a president. If a president is afraid to act because they're worried about being indicted when they leave office, a president of the United States has to have immunity. Former President Trump's immunity argument rejected by a federal court of appeals. The three-judge panel ruling unanimously that Trump can be prosecuted in the federal case alleging he plotted to overturn the 2020 election. Now, Trump and his legal team have until Monday to file an appeal. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is set to hear arguments about whether Trump is ineligible for the 2024 ballot under the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists holding public office. Trump's lawyers will be there at the Supreme Court. Trump will not be there. A source tells CNN that after treating court appearances like campaign stops, Trump realizes just how, quote, serious this case is. Let's bring in Caitlin Polantz, who joins us with a lot more. Interesting. Let's start there. What more you've learned about Trump's plans as he waits for the Supreme Court to consider this 14th Amendment argument? 
Yeah, Phil and Poppy, he's not going to be there. He has shown up uh, unusually, really, for someone in his position where his lawyers are arguing legal issues to an appeals court hearing on a different case recently, but he's not going to be at the Supreme Court tomorrow. That's because, in a lot of ways, he has bigger fish to fry. There are bigger legal risks out there for him in the future, including related to his criminal case that could very likely be before the Supreme Court. There's not a lot of upside for him uh, being a force in the room that could be disruptive or pull focus from what the justices of the Supreme Court are there to do tomorrow, ask the legal questions about having someone eligible for the ballot in various states and states' power to remove someone like Donald Trump for, from the ballot. And also, it's the Nevada caucuses on Thursday, and so he does plan to travel to Nevada. Uh, but it is still going to be a very significant legal argument before the Supreme Court tomorrow on Thursday. Caitlin, can you explain the kind of power behind the appeals court decision on Trump's immunity, what it brings to the table now? Yeah, this was the decision yesterday from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Three judges writing in unison, 57 pages, very thoroughly saying that the president is not above the law. There is not an immunity that protects someone serving in that office if they choose to break the law. And the things that Donald Trump was doing after the 2020 election to disrupt uh, voters' selection of the president, the things he's accused of, those are certainly things that the Justice Department can choose to charge as crimes and that the court system can address. So that was a very powerful decision from the three judges. Now, potentially up to the Supreme Court, Trump is very likely to appeal there. We'll watch. Caitlin, thank you very much. With us to discuss, former federal prosecutor Christy Greenberg and CNN Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic. Thank you both for being here. Joan, let me just start with you on how strong, as, as uh, Caitlin just said, the wording of the unanimous decision by this appellate court yeah. was and is about whether a president has immunity for crimes. It was very strong. Uh, these three ju uh, judges, I can say, I, I think it was really distinctive that all, they were unanimous, and yep. these are judges who crossed the ideological spectrum. Uh, one of the judges was appointed by George H.W. Bush back in 1990, and all three agreed fully with those 57 pages that, uh, to reject every single ground that President Trump, uh, former President Trump had asserted about why he should have immunity. They really took it apart, saying that, look, he will be like any ordinary citizen who, and have defenses when he stands trial, but he cannot claim immunity. And they relied heavily on precedents that are in this area of the law. Uh, as we know, the Supreme Court itself has never taken on the direct question of whether a former president would have absolute immunity from criminal prosecution. But there are other cases that inform this decision, and the justices, the judges hewed very closely to that. And it was forceful in another way, uh, Poppy and Phil. Not only did it di dissect the legal arguments, but it really uh, took a strong hand toward Trump saying, you know, if the accusations against the former president are true, it would amount to an unprecedented assault on the structure of government. And one last thing, as it brushed aside his uh, claim that this would open up future presidents to being um, uh, you know, prosecuted after they leave office, they said it's never happened before. And it probably will never happen again. Uh, there are so many checks on the process. And this is a, a unique situation to Donald Trump. And they rejected every one of his arguments. Poppy. Christy, the unanimous nature of it, the actual 
uh, language and I think the firm nature of that language throughout the course of the opinion. Trump has until Monday to appeal. Is this something the Supreme Court's even going to take? I think we all assumed that it it was inevitably going to end up at the Supreme Court. They don't have to take this. They don't. So on Monday, he has he needs five votes to basically stay this uh, this appeals decision. Otherwise, it goes back to Judge Chutkin and four votes on the Supreme Court to just to hear it on a writ of certiorari. So will he get four or five votes? Um, Unclear. This was such a strong opinion. You know, it was unanimous. I'm not sure what the issue is that they are going to really take up here. That said, the Supreme Court likes to have the last word on issues that deal with presidential immunity. These this is a case of first impression. It's never been dealt with before. And so they may want to have the last word here. Let's move to tomorrow. Uh, Joan, you'll be part of our special coverage, obviously, uh, from the Supreme Court, where um, where the American people are going to hear in real time uh, the argument over the 14th Amendment. Explain to people what's going to play out in the courtroom and what's at stake. Sure. I, I- I'm so glad you mentioned, you know, our special coverage tomorrow because I think it'll be really exciting and I'll be there in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the ruling we got yesterday that really evoked what happened at the Capitol on January 6th and, you know, it, it Trump's uh, alleged assault on democracy, arguments tomorrow could be very centered on the text of a particular provision, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that bars anyone from holding future office who had taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and was, quote, an officer of the United States who then engaged in an insurrection. And, you know, that's a... That's a provision, post-Civil War provision, that was uh, aimed at uh, former Confederate leaders to stop them from holding future office. And, you know, it's never really been interpreted in modern times, you know, obviously not by the Supreme Court. We've had some lower court uh, judges looking at this, and the Colorado Supreme Court indeed said that it would cover Donald Trump. But I think what you'll hear, Poppy and Phil, is just a lot of parsing of language. What constitutes an officer of the United States? Trump's team says that he he would not qualify. He would not uh, be in the list of officers there because the presidency is treated different as a term in the Constitution. So it, it could end up sounding quite technical. But I can tell you that the lawyers for the Colorado voters who are bringing this challenge mm-hmm. will try as much as they can to keep the justices focused on the insurrection itself. And they will try to talk a lot about January 6th. Well, the justices will have to see. Yeah, Christy, lawyers parsing language, breaking news from from (laughs) But to that point, for people who aren't familiar with these types of arguments for the Supreme Court, if you're listening, you as a a former prosecutor, what are you listening to here? What, What do you think is critical? Well, I do think that they will be looking to the text of the Constitution. They're going to look at the history to inform what the text means. Uh, And at least as to that question about whether or not Donald Trump under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was an officer of the United States, there are arguments on both sides. And you have the lower court in Colorado who agreed with Donald Trump that, hey, the presidency isn't listed. And if it's not specifically listed, they must have meant to exclude it in a prior draft. It was actually in there and then it was taken out. That must have been intentional. Then you have the Colorado Supreme Court on the other side saying, well, in many other ways, office was always considered to be office of the presidency and common sense tells you that that's what it should be. And so you're going to have a lot of this parsing, not only the text, but of the history. 
I actually don't think the Supreme Court justices are going to wade into the political waters too much of whether or not Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. Both the Colorado Supreme Court and the lower court found that he did. If anything, I think they'll quibble more with the process that was afforded or not afforded to him. It'll be a big day. Uh, Christy Greenberg, Jump Scoopic. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well, he's been a senator. He's been a Knicks legend. So Bill Bradley knows a little bit about bridging divides. He's going to join us next in studio with a revealing look at a new documentary about his life and what he thinks about the state of politics today. We live in a time when on a basic level, politics is broken. In growing numbers, people have lost faith in the political process and on whether it can help their threatened economic circumstance. The political debate has settled into two familiar ruts. That's a speech that sounds like it could happen today. That was former New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley lamenting the state of U.S. politics back in 1995. 30 years after leaving the Senate, Bradley is sharing his life story in a new documentary aimed at bringing people together around shared humanity. It details Bradley's journey from a childhood basketball star in Missouri to NBA champion to three-term senator and candidate for the Democratic nomination for president. Rolling Along in American Story is now available on Max, which is owned by CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. And joining us now is NBA Hall of Famer, former New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley. Senator, thanks so much for being here. Um, the creation of this and how you got it to this point is fascinating to me. Can you briefly walk through how you went from one-man show idea to now an sure, HBO Max sure. documentary? Well, one of the reasons I did it, looking at a divided country, and I wanted to have healing. I want to try to promote healing. And by being candid about myself, I thought that uh, I'd have credibility with people and then they could tell their stories and all of our stories would be the American story. Well, yeah, I had this idea to do it as a, uh, uh, well, I didn't have the idea, actually. I, I had a, uh, I gave my papers to Princeton and had a reception for all the people who participated in the oral history. Uh, project and one of the guys who happened to be uh, a, a Broadway producer of 72 plays, Manny Eisenberg, came up to me afterwards and said, uh, "Sounds." I told stories about each one of the 40 people who showed up, and Manny said, uh, "Sounds a little bit like Hal Holbrook doing Mark Twain. You ought to work something up." So for the next year, I wrote it, and then I took it to 20 cities to workshop it around the country, and then COVID hit and it allowed me to actually go deeper. Yeah. And then coming out of COVID, I realized I was not gonna go around to 20 cities and do this in theaters. So I rented a theater in New York for four nights, five cameras, and the result is rolling along the film. You uh, had some help on this from a fairly prominent Knicks fan, who I think has dabbled in movies. His name's Spike Lee. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because you can, the thread together between your time on the Knicks and on issues of race, on issues of cultural kind of division and how that the teams that you were on uh, just kind of divine the ability to get over and through that. Talk about those teams. Well, I think we have very special uh, people on the teams I played on. And I learned a lot more from my black teammates than they learned from me, for sure. I learned about uh, the America that they saw and experienced. For example, Dick Barnett told me after his Tennessee State team won the 
small college national championship, he, the team flew back to Nashville. He went straight to a lunch counter sit-in downtown to protest segregated restaurants and had to have the discipline not to respond when white people spit on him for protesting a restaurant. Um, then the African-American rookie from Mississippi who said he'd always vote because for 150 years his family didn't have a right to vote. Then one night, one day, Cassie Russell, one of the stars of the team, was uh, late to a practice and in Detroit one day and, and was fined by the coach because you're always fine when you're late. Mm-hmm. And five minutes into the practice, he was in a fight with a white rookie. And Willis stepped in, Willis Reed stepped in to break it up. And Cassie snapped, Uncle Tom. Only later did I discover that Cassie's lateness and foul mood came from being stopped by Michigan State Police on the drive down, forced to lie spread eagle on the hood of the cars, his trunk and back seat were, were searched. So the stories that I heard and then the camaraderie and the, uh, and the, the sharing that we had as human beings yeah. really made it a very special time. You served in the Senate with President mm-hmm. Biden. He's, he talks like you talk in terms of how people are supposed to get along uh, and work together and, and be pragmatic. He oversees a country that is anything but. How do you think he's done? I think that President Biden has got an admirable record. He really has achieved quite a lot in terms of bills that employ people, uh, getting the economy moving forward, dealing with prescription drugs, a whole series of things he can run on and be proud of. And he's smart enough to know he had to get those done in the first two years in order to run on them in four years. And he's done that. Uh, Senator Bill Bradley, the documentary is rolling along. it's fascinating. I, I highly recommend it. I really appreciate you coming in. I told you where I was at a Knicks game over the weekend and heard a lot about Bill Bradley. I said, well, I'm going to talk to him. Uh, so I appreciate it. Well, Thanks good. so much. See you uh, on HBO Max. Definitely. You can watch Rolling Along, an American story right now on Max. What a great conversation. Thank you again for coming yeah. in. Thanks for being with us. See you here tomorrow morning. CNN News Central is next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.